Travolting presents The Fraser's Edge. Hosted by Jeff Sweeney and Stuart Elmore. Covering Gods and Monsters. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to a new world of gods and monsters. It's alive! It's alive! Oh god, it's alive! Does anyone know what the what the line I was referencing? Tusk. No! <laughs> the Mummy 2017 trailer in which Russell Crowe at the beginning of the movie is like, introducing you to the dark universe. He's like, welcome to a new world of gods and monsters. And then it cuts to Tom Cruise screaming. Wow. Anyway, specifically folks. the version without the, uh, yeah, without the, <laughs> without uh, the sound effects. effects in it. And it's just all people <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> and that is the best video on the internet to this day. Yeah. But yeah, welcome folks to our episode on gods and monsters. Yeah. Um, I'm still on my... Still on the wrong pages from our previous episode. Oh my god, Jeff! I'm falling apart today, folks. Thank you all for listening to our last episode on hundredth episode spectacular. Our hundredth episode spectacular. If you bother to listen to that, we really thank you if you did. But our previous Brandon Fraser movie that we covered, George <laughs> of the Jungle. Yes. Thank you very much for listening to that episode. I know we know we took an hundredth episode special interlude where we watched the pilot of Welcome Back, Cotter. Um. And now we are back in the Brendan Fraser land where we're covering his next movie after George of the Jungle, Gods and Monsters. Yes. I'm just going to start off. Uh, I don't know where the filming took place. Yes. If Gods and Monsters was filmed before George and George was released before Gods and Monsters or if they filmed George of the Jungle, George Jungle released, filmed Gods and Monsters, Gods and Monsters was released. I don't know. I don't know what the chronology is, but it's just interesting to me that like (laughs) Both come out in 99? No. So or, this this movie, uh, Gods and Monsters, comes out in 1998. And George the Jungle? Comes out in 1997. This movie's filming while George the Jungle is coming out. Okay. So it is it is George this. George, George, George of the Jungle. Yes. Watch out for that tree. And Watch out for that tree. Yes. Uh, so that would imply then he's on the set of George of the Jungle getting the offer to do Gods and Monsters. Yes. Right? Yes. One can presume. So then that just only um I I just wanted to start be, by saying like that's a very interesting actor choice. Yeah, I mean, at this point in Brendan's career, he is jumping a lot from comedy to drama with a respected older star. Yes. Like you know his um his younger and younger. His younger and younger's with Sutherland. And um, um with I mean with Honors is a comedy, but it's with Pesci. Yeah. You're the Scouts with Albert Brooks. Yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and that's where he's at, and this very much falls into that camp. And by my reckoning, it is the most successful version of him doing that. Yeah. Right. Um, because folks, I'll just say right up front, I adored this movie. This might be in contention for my second favorite movie we've covered on this podcast. Really? Yes. Interesting. What's first? Uh, blowout. Blowout uh, for Travolta. If oh, we're co- you're covering I, I both seasons. Yes. If we're talking Fraser, this is no doubt the, my favorite movie we've covered. If we're talking... The entire podcast. The entire podcast, it might be number two. It's definitely in the top five. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, I adored this movie. I was very emotionally attached to this movie. I found the story compelling. The Ian McKellen is the showstopper. This movie just did it for me. It's interesting. Okay. Um, and this movie is about the filmmaker James Whale, um, the later years of his life, as who, the man who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Would it the, be the, the only movie that Brendan Fraser does that involves a whale? Yes. Um, but the reason why we have... Invisible Man. When I discovered this movie is about... He also did The Invisible Man. The re, when I discovered that this movie was about that topic, I knew we had to have Dave back to guest. Because Dave is... My closest friend who know who has the entire who knows the most about early Hollywood. He's something of an expert on early Hollywood, specifically mm. the twenties and the thirties, which is of course why we had him on the show before to talk about um, Welcome to Hollywood and Gotti, two acclaimed classics of nineteen twenty cinema. <laughs> Forcing you to do a Buster Keaton podcast after you've done this one. Uh, but no, I knew that Dave would be the right person to talk to about this movie because he would know the true story. Man, Dave, he's really building you up. And prior to this, Dave did tell me, you should watch Bride of Frankenstein. And I said, why would I do that? Um, and then I watched this movie, and I was very emotionally connected to this movie. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch it. Uh, but then I realized, I've never seen Frankenstein. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I should watch Frankenstein before I watch Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, so this morning, I put Frankenstein on. Um, and then uh, a bunch of errands popped up and I got about 30 minutes into Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I do have to finish Frankenstein and watch Bride of Frankenstein, but I did start the process that you told me to do. You disappoint me. <laughs> <laughs> I did start it because I did love this movie. Um, so a little quick little interlude of something that we typically do with all our guests is with our connections to the film. I mean, I'll just say like, I don't have any connection to this film. I've never seen this movie before. It's my first time watching it. Um, I'd heard of this movie vaguely. Yes. I had almost no idea what it was about. I certainly didn't know it was about the director of the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein movies. Yes. Um, and I almost didn't even know Brendan Fraser was in it. Yeah. I just knew, I knew Ian McKellen was in it. He's like the poster child of the movie. Yeah, he's um, literally on the poster of this movie. It's just his face um, with a bunch of film reels of Brendan Fraser. So yeah, I virtually had no connection to this movie. But Dave, did you have you seen this movie before? Do you know of it? I had not. I had barely heard of it before until Jeff texted me saying, "Hey, this is the movie you're covering." I'm like, "Oh, let me see what it is." Oh, thank God, he actually gave me a good movie. <laughs> I gave you a good movie, and I gave you a movie you would <laughs> like. The topic would be compelling to you. Yeah, and thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I think you. Yeah, might... I agree with you. This was a solid, solid movie. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful film. Um, and we'll, when we get into the plot, I'll talk more about why I feel that way. And I think it might, this will be interesting because when we go to the pretext, like, I don't know, Dave, if you have other n pretexts of the knowledge of those movies, but, um, but Jeff, just to start off, like, well, first off, did you watch this movie before Jeff? I had not seen this movie before. I watched it for the first time yesterday. Okay. And unlike Dave, I am something of a neophyte to like early Hollywood cinema. I haven't seen that much of it. Uh, which is why I want to. You've bring... seen thirteen films from pre nineteen forty. This is correct. Uh, I do. Dave I've did. counted. He went on my letterbox and he put time years from like before nineteen forty, and he counted thirteen movies, and then he said, "You're pathetic." Um, wow. Yeah, and I I knew that six of those were from film classes. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna call myself out and be like, I'm probably not very far off from that number, and for the same reason for mm -hmm. film classes. And it's all the classics too. It's not like any like 
niche stuff mm-hmm. like Fritz Lang, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, the... the Stuart's going to be like, that fucking guy. <laughs> that fucking guy. Uh, yeah, that fucking guy. Get yourself into some, get yourself into some like old George Maitlis, however you Maitlis, Maitlis, I don't know. Uh, get yourself into that shit. Go early, early. Get yourself into like Alice D. Blachey something. I don't know. What I early. Get yourself into the train <laughs> arriving at the station. Oh, yeah. Yes. The pier. If you haven't watched Roundhead Garden Scene, you're not a real <laughs> film person. <laughs> I did add one old movie to my repertoire recently. Um, I saw, Dave, that you watched a movie called Cap- Capybara Walking, and it was 30 seconds long. Mm-hmm. So I astutely looked it up and watched it, and it was great. It was it's 30 seconds. I literally told you to watch it. It was 30 seconds of a Capybara Walking. <laughs> nice. A movie that was played in theaters. Wow. It's good. <laughs> um, uh, what pretext do you have, Jeff? So for this movie in particular, we talked. All, we basically talked about Fraser, where he's at. Yeah. Uh, he's achieving mainstream success at this time, and I think this is basically the pinnacle of his dramatic success. Yeah, because after career. this, it's... As a dramatic actor, not a, not a movie star, as purely a dramatic actor, I think this is the peak of his career. Because, like... After this, it's like, what would we qualify as his next dramatic role? And I, looking at it, I'm unfortunately thinking, is it Crash? It's probably The Quiet American. Oh, yeah, The Quiet American. And then he does Crash, and then a bunch of movies that no one's ever heard of. He does Harrison Ford, Extraordinary Measures. Which, but Extraordinary Measures is in 20... It's a flop. That's But that's 2010. This is 98. So After this, the next, like, if we ignore Crash... Um, the next as t- most people do as most people do except for the academy in 2006 <laughs> for some reason <laughs> um, and yeah it is the, probably the quiet American I would say his next successful like dramatic role is probably the whale is the quiet American not successful I mean it's a movie it comes out I'm just looking it up and it's got good reviews it's another movie where it follows the same trope of him following another bigger name actor because yes. it's Michael Caine Michael Caine. Yeah, it's Brendan Fraser in a Michael Caine vehicle. But I would say, even if that's a good movie, I don't think he does anything. He doesn't get anything out of it. Yeah, it's not like, it's not, um, I mean, Michael Caine gets his Oscar nomination and the movie's good. Um, But I think in terms of Brendan being the, like, you know, I don't think The Quiet American surpasses this. Yeah. I think Brendan's next biggest is probably The Whale, which is out in theaters as we speak. Yeah. You maybe say the three peaks are um, Gods and Monsters, Quiet American, Whale. Those are his dramatic acting peaks. Yeah. Uh, so I think this movie's special in that way because mm-hmm. we're we're seeing like the apex of his work as a dramatic actor. Yeah. And I think that there is a problem with him in this movie that we'll talk about. And yeah. I think that problem is that Ian McKellen is so fucking good in this movie that even if Fraser is very good in this movie. Watching him next to Ian McKellen, it just doesn't do him any favors. I whole, he's getting eclipsed in every scene. I wholeheartedly agree. Like I think, and I think if you removed Ian McKellen from this movie, Fraser's maybe giving one of his best performances. <laughs> but just when he's next to McKellen, you're just like, you're so drawn you, there's by no McKellen. No comparison. You All cannot your, compare. And I fully agree with that. When I was watching their scenes together. I did not really care, nor did I fully believe Fraser. Yeah. And it's not a really testament against him. It's just how much my eyeballs were glued on McKellen yeah. and their scenes Because he's doing so much. He's doing a movie. lot. This is an in- 
scored incredible performance. Yeah. I kind of just want to make this the McKellen cast today, but we, we will stick with Fraser's Edge. Yeah. Uh, Dave, in your viewing and then potentially future insight in the movie, do you have any pretext you found out going into this? Uh, no, I kind of just walked into it. Um, I, I've only literally watched it, what was it, two days ago? I also refrained from putting my review up on Letterboxd, uh, just so that way Jeff could not peek what my opinions on this film were going to be. He would have to go blind in with me. Very fair. Now, but you had have you watched the Frankenstein movies before this? Uh, yeah, I, I had seen every Universal horror film, all the Frankenstein's, Invisible Man, Dracula, all that stuff. Uh, actually, last October, um, I did because there are thirty-one of them. I did all of them. One a day. <laughs> For October, wow. yeah. So then, I, I but wanna, you know, there's thirty. So that I didn't I, know it's for Atsu on the thirty first. I want to ask you then: just delete the gods and monsters from ex- existence. <laughs> like, where does Jimmy Whale, from a person who studies that um, culture of filmmaking, where does Jimmy Whale sort of place? And I don't mean like good or bad. I just mean like in the general cosmos of that era of filmmaking. Well, he had done um, his notable would be. Uh, so he did Frankenstein. He did Invisible Man, which, by the way, rules as a film. Like, I think it's probably, so, like, at least top five of the uh, Universal monster films. Bride of Frankenstein, I didn't particularly, even though that's the uh, whole point of this film, is relating back to Bride of Frankenstein as his as his life and also looking into the film as uh, queer coding. Uh, I didn't enjoy bride of frankenstein as much as the other ones i think i did i think i do like the original frankenstein and invisible man more than i liked his directed bride of frankenstein but mm. beyond the universal monster films he also did um dialogue dialogue direction for hell's angels uh he did a decent film called a uh, showboat in i think the late 30s it was a talkie so yeah late 30s mm-hmm. um <clears throat> And then uh, the rest of his career, I'm not particularly familiar with. I haven't watched many of uh, his films. He talks a little bit in this movie about um, mm-hmm. how, you know, after Showboat, he did The the Road Ahead, I believe it was called. Yeah, the Road the Back. The Road Back. Um, you, which, uh, <laughs> which was uh, taken from him by the studio and butchered and his career was ruined for it. I do want to say, even though he didn't really do any major notable movies after that, he does direct the original The Man in the Iron Mask, um, which is eventually, you know, which is based on stories, French stories, which is eventually remade and readapted by, uh, I don't remember who did it, but Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, that movie. James Whale did the original version of that, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so I want to offer some pretext about this movie. Um and the filmmakers behind this movie. Uh, So this movie is directed by Bill Condon, uh, who is one of the few openly gay directors and screenwriters working in Hollywood in the 90s. Uh, Bill Condon has one of my favorite careers of a filmmaker. Stuart, can I, Dave, can I lay out this guy's filmography for you? Oh, I I know exactly where you're going with this. This is a wild ride, Stuart. You're in for it. Have you, have you looked at Bill Condon's career? No. Don't. I'm going to, I'm going to lay it out for you right now. Okay. Because it's all very logical moves. Uh, so his first movie is a Southern Gothic drama, a psychological horror film called Sister, Sister in 1987. Yeah. Off of this, he, of course, jumps and directs Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. Huh. Um, and, of course, you know, after you 
direct a successful horror movie, you make what you the next logical step, and he does this, Gods and Monsters, and wins an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay. Um, after, you know, he had a very successful drama, so he's like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write the screenplay to the musical Chicago and get nominated for another Oscar for that, but then not direct the movie. Because I'm going to go and direct a drama called Kinsey, starring Liam Neeson, which is about the creation of the Kinsey scale for sexual orientation. Oh. A movie that is mostly about how big Liam Neeson's dick is. Um, yeah. Um, after that, he, of course, jumps in and directs Dreamgirls, the movie that gets Eddie Murphy his Oscar nomination. And then, Stuart, Dave, after you direct Dreamgirls, you know, you've had basically three successful dramas back-to-back. Yeah. What do you do next? You what? jump into a, the best two-parter of all time. Yeah, he goes and he directs The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Part 1 and Part 2. No shit. <laughs> and finishes out The Twilight Saga. After Twilight, he directs The Fifth Estate, the Benedict Cumberbatch Julian Assange movie, which is set, which is filmed and released like three years before most of the WikiLeaks stuff actually happens. Um, off the fifth estate, he's like, all right, I'm going to team up with Ian McKellen again and make Mr. Holmes, a movie about 95 year old Sherlock Holmes solving a mystery. <laughs> and then he's like, yes, now I'm going to finally go back to what I love and directs the live action beauty and the beast. <laughs> oh my God. He then, um, writes the greatest showman. <laughs> And most recently directed The Good Liar, a movie about Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren as old con artists. I don't see a misstep in his career. It's a <laughs> career where every next choice does not make sense, but is somehow the right choice for him. He's going full Ang Lee. He's just doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's like, yeah, I do Candyman. I think I'll do Twilight. <laughs> wow. the, the thing that's funny is that... Um, you know, he does this movie about James Whale, who directs The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh-huh. And that Bill Conn himself is an openly gay director in a not necessarily, you know, positive time for gay right. artists. Yeah. Um, and he does this movie about The Bride of Frankenstein. And then, I don't know, have either of you seen The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1? I unfortunately have. It's a movie. Is that the one with the wild flashback or the flash forward? No, that, that is. <laughs> That's Breaking Dawn Part 2. Part 1's when Thank they have their have... kid. I kind of like the last two Twilights. They're kind of funny. But anyway, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1. When they get married. Opens with a flashback to a vampire attacking someone in 1930s in a black and white showing of The Bride of Frankenstein. Huh. And so the whole opening of that movie is set at a movie theater in the 30s um, showing Bride of Frankenstein. Wow. And then in 2017, after Beauty and the Beast, Bill Condon was hired to direct the live act, the Bride of Frankenstein movie for the Dark Universe. No shit. The uh, the franchise that was attempted to start with the Tom Cruise Mummy movie. Yeah. Uh, Bill Condon was hired to do the Bride of Frankenstein for that. Wow. And he was very excited. His entire his entire life, he's been trying to make a Bride of Frankenstein remake. Yeah. Um, and that was his move, and that was like his chance. Even though it had to be like a shitty action movie where Tom Cruise probably shows up and shoots the Bride of Frankenstein or something, right? Uh, but when the Dark Universe imploded, that movie was canceled, so his dreams were shattered once again. Wow. Hopefully, one day he will succeed at. But I just thought that's a very interesting career. What a, that to track. is such a fascinating career. Yeah, Bill Condon, fascinating guy. Like to talk about. Him. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but that's where his end to this movie is, because you know he's an openly gay filmmaker, and James Whale was one of the few openly, and he wasn't even that open at the time. Um, he was very closeted, um, forced by you know the time period that he was making films in, and so that's Condon's into this is um, you know a gay man working in a not necessarily friendly industry to gay people in a time that was very not friendly. And the thing that I respect is that this movie is about all those issues directed by a gay man and starring a gay man. Because we know Ian McKellen's one of the most prominent uh, gay actors in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and it's very cool to see a movie by all those artists with those perspectives ma- telling this story. It feels very authentic when you watch the movie. Wow. Um, and that's that's the extent of what I wanted to talk about in regards to the pretext of this movie. I really don't have much to say about Fraser besides what we said at the beginning. I doesn't, I'm not going to have a lot to say about Fraser in this episode. Sorry, I was just reading some like trivia bits about yeah. James Whale yeah. while we were doing that. So, But wow. No, yeah. I mean... Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I liked this movie, but yeah. it wasn't like... It didn't blow my socks yeah. off. Good. It didn't rock your world. Did not rock my world. And I think part of that problem was like this seems like a movie and I know you probably weren't super inundated with like the history of James Whale when you watched this yeah. nor maybe you weren't either Dave. But I at least just felt like that this movie is for the people who sort of knew about the history of James Whale yeah. and how he got to where he was. And this movie was made for those folks. It's for people who had seen Frankenstein. Yeah. And I had like, I don't think I've ever seen. I mean, if I have seen Frankenstein, it's been fucking forever since I have. I don't have any attachment to the Frankenstein movies. And then like the trivia bits that I was reading was like when he first died, his suicide note was never revealed. Yeah. Until um, his partner, David. Uh, who was, David Lewis. Yeah, who died. Then they found the note and it revealed uh, the suicide note. <laughs> um, which kind of left that in sense into an aura of mystery. And so I can imagine for folks who are well known into that film knowledge and this movie comes out and it sort of paints that picture for you, I can see mm-hmm. that being like a phenomenal, like w- yeah. interesting insight into this person who sort of went away from Hollywood for a while and had a lot of demons inside. Mm -hmm. But for me, I never had any of that context and I just, I felt kind of lost in all of it was trying to say and do. So, I mean, like I I fully agree. One of the best Ian McKellen performances ever. Yeah. Um, And Brenda Fraser does a pretty good job, although I agree he's very much overshadowed. Um, But I was always just struggling to like understand what the Jane, the, you know, if, if you one. don't know that much about like the period and the movies, yeah, um, which I admittedly didn't know too much, right? Um, I kind of saw this as an in where it made me really excited to watch more of these movies. Yeah, um, you're welcome, Dave. Uh, thank you. Um, but that's how, <laughs> and I, but I can understand if you're not in that position, like yeah. being like somewhat lost by this movie. Yeah, because it is a very surrealist movie. It is. Yeah. Not like in a David Lynch sense necessarily. But. No. <coughs> uh, so. Dave, do you have anything else you want to say about James Whale or these movies before we dive in to the plot? 
I mean, yeah, so he was, uh, not that he hit it or anything. He was openly gay. He just did not pronounce it. Like, if anyone asked, he would just be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't, like, going out there and saying it to everyone. But he did absolutely nothing to hide it. Okay, that's good. Uh, and reportedly, that was, as the movie uh, tells you, that was the downfall of his career. Because, boy, howdy, was that not a good time to yeah. be an openly gay person? Yeah, that's the real tragedy of this movie, <laughs> is um, knowing that that's essentially how his life really went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but shall we dive into the plot, folks? Yeah. Sure. Let's do it. All right. So this movie's getting out the notes. I actually did take notes for this one. I forgot to take notes for the other movie we're covering today, but I did take notes for this. Um, the thing that actually, one quick thing I do want to offer some context on is Ian McKellen. Because the thing that's funny about Ian McKellen is that, he, <coughs> sorry, he doesn't really become a big actor until his like late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Because he's in a lot of stuff prior to this movie. But when it comes to, like, a major performance, this is kind of his first one. Uh Uh-huh. Because he's in, you know, he's in movies. He pops up in The Shadow. Um, He's in The Last Action Hero. He's in a lot of Shakespeare adaptations. He directs Richard III. Or, no, he writes Richard III, which is just, you know, adapting some stuff but this is kind of his first like big hollywood movie starring ian mckellen mm-hmm. and he gets an oscar nomination for this and it kind of jump starts his career because right off of this he jumps into brian singer's apt pupil uh it's based on a stephen king novel and then he gets x-men and lord of the rings immediately after this movie yeah so it is kind of funny that ian mckellen's this guy who becomes a megastar when he's old mm-hmm and after spending a year of doing Shakespeare, or a lifetime of doing Shakespearean theater, he suddenly becomes an action star. Because playing, a Shakespearean villain. Yeah, yeah, playing Magneto and Gandalf. <laughs> That's just, and then he has like, his 2000s are hit after hit. It's Lord of the Rings, it's X-Men, it's Flushed Away, Da Vinci Code, Golden Compass, um, The Hobbits, X-Men again. It, it's just a very, it's a funny career. He ends up with Cats, a uh, great movie. Yeah. He plays Gus. Dave, we saw Cats opening night. Um, do you remember this? Yes. <laughs> we saw it before they released the patch that added more visual effects refinement. Yeah, we saw Cats opening weekend when it had, when they had like human hands. Um, I dragged him to go see it, and uh, it was a good time. I ordered two beers before the movie started. Nice. All right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, di- so diving into the gods and monsters. Yeah, gods. Welcome to the world of gods. And monsters. Uh, so we meet James Whale. Like, how, how does this even open? I don't even remember like, the actually, opening image. It's ba- I don't remember the opening image. Well, the opening image <coughs> is a recreation from a shot from Frankenstein mm-hmm. of um, the monster like walking on uh, a horizon, his silhouette. Yeah. Except in this, it's uh, James Whale just walking on the horizon by himself. Yeah. Then it's a freeze frame, and then we go to present day for the movie which is 1957 uh-huh and we meet james, we meet we start with fraser we start with fraser mm-hmm. um we're introduced to fraser who's playing a man named clayton boone clay boone yeah uh, he's sleeping in a trailer by the sea and in he's, la uh james wales yard man yes he's like just a, a, dr- a yard man who drives around town and does lots. trips bushes and shit yeah yeah 
And he gets up and like we see that his apartment's littered with like cigarette butts and empty beer cans. He's kind of living like a destitute lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But he gets in his beat up old truck and he drives. Um, we track him as he's driving, and he arrives at James Whale's house and starts doing yard work. Yeah, the first thing we notice is that it's not a big mansion house. Yeah, it's like a little house. Mm-hmm. I mean, for it, it was in L.A. I'm yeah. assuming, right? So like for an L.A. house, probably a decent amount of money. Yeah. But like it's not like you know a three story house. Yeah. And we get a little into his, his, we get a little bit of process with his day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, that he like, you know, he gets up in the morning. He recently had um, some sort of injury um, or so he has a condition. A yeah. Uh, so he's walking around. He has to take a pill every morning um, <laughs> or he has to take a pill every night. And then if he is ever having an act, like a flare up, he has a stroke later in the movie, but I don't know if he's had a stroke prior, if that's been established, but he has a brain illness. Yeah. It's some sort of like you know deterioration yes where he loses it, it's more cognizant yeah. than motor functions and he lives alone but with his, the only person who he sees is um his maid hannah played by lynn redgrave yeah uh who just walks around talking like this she's like oh mr whale mr jimmy she's scandinavian or whatever i think she's like yes is that is she scandinavian yes because she talks on the phone um <laughs> later in the film okay in, uh, <clears throat> gotcha. And uh, then gets an Oscar nomination for this. She does get an Oscar nomination off. No of shit, really? Yes. Her and McKellen are the two Oscar nominations off this movie. Wow. Um, and also uh, adapted screenplay, which it wins. But he um he's living like kind of a, a shattered end of life alone. Mm-hmm. Um we we see a guy, uh his partner David, who like kind of swings by and gives him a kiss and then leaves. But they're not living together. They're not living together. He's just like, they're separated, but David still cares about him and checks in on him. Yeah. Um, and then um, Hannah's just like, oh, Mr. Jimmy. Uh, first interview in many years. That's exciting. Right. Um, and he's like, oh, it's just for school paper, isn't it? Um, and then, you know, the interviewee shows up. This guy. This guy. Um, who is, what's his name? Um, God, I don't remember. Um, um, I think it's is it Harry? I'm I'm gonna look it up. I'm trying to figure out what the uh, the guy's name is. Yeah, oh, is it is Mr. Harry. K? Mr. K? Edmund K? Yeah, Ed K. He's like Mr. K. Um, but Mr. This kid shows up as a college student. Yeah, and I really like a little detail here. When because he's uh, whales in the study just sitting down mm-hmm. and when he hears that this person who's interviewing him is at the door he grabs a book and opens it up and acts like he's been reading it for a while mm-hmm. and he basically has it set right as the kid walks in the room and then he closed the book he's like oh mr k what a pleasure to see you he's trying to give off this presentation of himself yeah um as someone who like can still read and still has his faculties together yeah um and so they start interviewing he's like would you like to be would you like to interview down by the pool and the guy and the kid who is, um, I will say, seems very um, Ma- effem- like effeminate. Yeah, um, not subtle here. Yes, it's not very subtle. Like you can kind of see where this is going. Yeah, and so he's like, "Let's interview down by the pool." So they go down by the pool. It's a good Bengali impression. It's all right. Um, and so they they're sitting down by the pool, and he's and the kids are asking him, "So tell me about your life." Like, oh, that's. 
Uh, when I was a young man, I was born in poverty and uh, earned part of it, but we weren't, we weren't rich either. Uh, he was talking about how he was born in the north of London. Yeah. And um, how... <laughs> Stuart's giving me this look. Uh, he was raised in the north of London, um, how his father was a hard man, how at 14 he was pulled out of uh, school and to sent work to work in a factory. factory. Yeah. To help raise money for the family. Which he suffered like trauma from how he was the artist in a non-artistic family yeah and how that uh, filled him with a lot of like lifelong trauma and eventually how he wound up in world war one right and when he gets to that that's kind of where the mr k the kid's like all right but the what move, about frankenstein what about the, movies? the horror movies he's like you don't want to talk about my heart pictures it's like i see you're more interested in my pictures than you are to me <laughs> it's um, like i'll tell you what Yes, I will. I will answer any qu- one any question as honestly uh, as I can for one article of clothing. Yeah, take one article of clothing off. So he's like, "Oh, okay, Mister Whale." <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Uh, I can't remember what the first question is, but he's like, "You must take your shoes and socks off for that." Immediately get the feet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's going. He's tarantining. Uh, he's he's tarantining right on this one. Um, and the, the next few scenes, we just kind of get a little more about James Whale's like childhood and life. He talks a little bit about the monsters and how he designed Frankenstein and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I wrote McKellen killing it in my notebook at this time. Well, because he's 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 sort of like shattering the whole sanctity of the movie. Yes. Because he's like, oh my god, and how did you describe the monster? It's like it's a man in a costume, young yes. man, like. <laughs> Like they're not to be worshipped. Yes, not to be worshipped. Um, and then something happens later where he starts to like. Oh, he drops his cigar. Yeah, he drops his cigar and he has a war flashback. At this point, Kay is wearing nothing but his underwear. But nothing but his underwear. Yeah. So he bends down to pick up his cigar, and that's when he starts to lose it yeah. a little bit. Important note is that he does mention to the kid, "Oh, George Cukor is gay as well." Oh, yeah. And the kid's like, George Cukor? Yeah, because he's like, so like, you know, people said the reason why you left Hollywood is because you're gay. It's like, oh, no, that's not the reason why. Because he, 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 he says like, oh, you know, I made a movie and it didn't do so well. And that was kind of the end of my career and all that stuff. It's like people didn't care who you were screaming back then as long as you kept it out of the papers. Is what they said is what he says. So George Cukor, um, Dave. Could you tell us George Cukor? Why? Why would this? Uh, why would he be so <clears throat> startling to um, a young man? Uh, do you? Know- I really don't know what the. I mean, I mean, they probably just name drop him because, like, hey, he's a big die bat then, because yeah. you know he did one of the many, many, many adaptations of A Star Is Born, and uh, <laughs> he did. Um, <clears throat> he did. Uh, My Fair Lady. Although at the time of this movie, I don't know what, what year does this movie take place. Nineteen fifty-seven. Okay, so he wouldn't have done My Fair Lady yet, but A Star is Born would have come out three, two, three years beforehand. Okay. <clears throat> you did Gaslight. He did get, he was he was one of the directors of Gone with the Wind, but was fired and replaced by Victor Fleming. Uh, he directed The Philadelphia Story um, and David Copperfield, amongst others. Uh, but I just want to give some context as to George Cukor. Still say he directed the best A Star is Born. Brad Cooper would have some problems with that. Have you seen the 54 Stars Born? Brad Cooper has some problems with that. Have you seen the 54 Stars? It's good. I have only seen the Brad Cooper. It's all my voice. What? 
So you stole my voice. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny about the Star is Born? You know, uh, there. I was just about to say, you know what's funny about Star is Born, but it's probably different. Yeah. You go first. Say it at the same time. <laughs> All right. Well, the thing that's funny about A Star is Born is that... Is that the star that's being born in A Star is Born is Judy Garland, who yeah. was actually a washed out star at the time. Yeah. And so the thing that's great about the star, A Star is Born, the 2018 one, is that Bradley Cooper um, cast himself as the lead role, and then he cast Sam Elliott as his brother, and clearly decides, well, I'm not changing Sam's voice. And so makes his voice sounds like Sam Elliott so he can keep Sam Elliott's voice in the movie. Yeah. He just starts coming in and talking about Sam Elliott. Well, my thing uh, is, yeah, Judy... Hey, want to take a little look at They have Judy Garland uh, being uh, Vicky Lester, the star who's being born, who at this point is pretty... Re- has a pretty reputable, like notoriety for being like difficult to work with on set and she's sort of starting to lose jobs Mm -hmm. her um drug addictions getting like the better of her and she's in like her third falling apart marriage at this point in time and then she gets nominated and she loose she loses the nomination to um i think she loses it to who won that year wasn't um, in 1955. 1955. 1955. Wasn't 1955. A... I don't remember, but... And she couldn't attend yeah. because she was giving birth to one of her... Uh, children. Oh, Liza Minnelli? No. Okay. I think Liza was born before. Um, no. Have you seen the... He also the... is noted gay icon. Yes. Judy Garland. Yeah. Um, have you seen the uh, Judy Garland biopic? Judy, With, I have not. Yeah. Renee Zellweger. I think it's actually pretty dope, but before the movie was even like advertised, that was one figure who I said deserves a biopic. I think Julie, mm-hmm. Judy Garland is a very, very interesting arc. Yes. In her career. Um, I am would be I would actually be interested to watch that movie. But I didn't think they did it enough justice in my personal opinion. But they did all right. They did all right. Interesting. So anyway, Star is born, George Cukor, gay. Yes interview yes Ian so McKellen he drops his, he, he drops a cigar and he starts having war flashbacks well he starts to have a stroke yes but brought upon in part by war flashbacks yeah sure um but, but they you know McKay uh, Kay, uh like helps him back in the house they give him like a pill yeah they say the name of the pill I don't remember what it is I forget that's with an L I think it does start with an L um but he takes the pill and they take him to the hospital afterwards and the doctor's basically telling him it's like yeah i mean you know the stroke didn't hurt any of your motor functions but like this is just going to be something you're going to be dealing with where your cognizant cognitive abilities are going to start to decline he's like you're making it sound like it's something that won't get better that i'll just have to live with and then like it kind of is something you're yeah it's like you're i mean there is no diagnosis for what's happening you're yeah. just becoming a senile old man Yeah, you're just getting old yeah um, and so he, he goes back home and he starts having, um, he has some other flashbacks. He envisions a gay pool party that he once held. Um, uh, and There's a lot of penises. Yes, a lot of penises. Um, and at one point he envisions his own suicide. <laughs> um, he was like holding the bottle of pills. Right. This is actually maybe the best joke this in the movie. This was like comedic though. Yeah, it's a good joke. He looks at the bottle of pills and then he just pours, pours them all in his all hand. And then... 
Cut to. Cut to uh, Lane Redgrave coming in the morning. Oh, Mr. Jimmy. He's like, Mr. Jimmy. And he's laying dead in the bed. And then it cuts back to him in bed holding the pills. Yeah, he's laughing. And he, he doesn't want to give her the satisfaction. <laughs> right. And then he puts him back in the bottle. Yeah. It's more told in a comedic frame. It is fully comedic, which is why I laughed at the beginning of this. Uh, suicide is no laughing matter otherwise. Right. Uh, as this movie will eventually point out. Um, but he has a lot of depression about his like you know his life and his body collapsing. Yeah. Um, and so he notices the new... The, the yard man. The yard man. Clay. Clay Boone. Fraser. And he, inv- and he invites him inside to come and have tea with him. Yeah. Um, and they kind of chat for a little bit. This movie's not very plotty, so it's hard to like yeah, track it. Yeah, I was going to say. It's like, if it's it seems like just we're just doing beat by beat. A lot cause... of nice... Di- it's like mostly just nice dialogue scenes. Like a lot of metaphor. And I will say, Brendan Fraser in this movie. Yes. I think I think we got to go there, Jeff. You want to go there? Let's do it. Let's cue the hair ranking. Cue the hair ranking. So. That's right, Dave. We are still doing the hair ranking. We are still Brendan doing Fraser the hair territory. ranking. Oh, beautiful. What's in What's in the lead right now for Brendan? George, George of the Jungle. George, Georgia of the Jungle. That makes sense. Yeah. Was he Was he ripped for this movie because he, of George doing prior, or was this like I we need a so. hot punk material for <laughs> Ian McKellen to? I think it's probably reminisce both. on. I think it's like we need we need somebody who's like a <laughs> hunk, and Brendan Fraser was already like a hunk before this movie and before George of the Jungle, but it just so happened that he got ripped during George the Jungle and this is just residual rippedness well, afterwards. I think the next scene that we're going to talk about. Let's do the hair and then I want to talk about the next scene because I'm actually going to talk about this point. Um so I this is going to be pretty quick cuz he just has like standard like you know. It's like kind of a buzz cut that grew out. Yeah, a little bit. Like he was in the military. He served he's in Korea. He's quartering mullet. Mm. Yeah. He, he's almost he's on his way to mullet. Um, <laughs> mullet territory. Do you have the list, Jeff? I do. Here you go. Um I'm going to put it uh, below the scout above school ties. Below the scout above school ties, which would make it a new number seven. Yes, it's true. Um, gods, a new world of gods and monsters. It, it's just if you watch the mummy trailer, specifically the one without any sound effects, because Russell Crowe is very funny in that trailer. He's just like, "Welcome to a new world of gods." And monsters. Yeah. Because he's playing Dr. Jekyll in that. <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, So, yeah, like he talks to Clay. And is this when he brings up, oh, I would love to draw you. Yeah, he he has him in his study. Yeah. And they're just kind of talking. He's showing off all of his sketches that he's done. Because um, he makes copies of other. Yeah, he makes copies of other famous artworks. Yeah. And he does sketches of people. He's like, I'd love to draw your draw you. Have you ever modeled before? It's like, what? You mean like pose for a picture? It's like pose for an artist. Pose for a sketch. Yeah. It's like I'd love to draw your face. So he's like, I would pay you, of course. And he says the line that I want to talk about why I think Fraser was cast for this movie. because uh, Fraser, he says, has a remarkable head and architectural skull. Yes. I was about to say the same thing. And which the haircut attributes to, by the way. And the thing is the end of the movie makes this very clear. Fraser has the Frankenstein's monster build. Yeah. 
he's built like Frankenstein's monster, which is why he's cast in this movie. Cut to our previous discussion on Passion of Darkly Noon. Yeah, where he's playing Frankenstein. Yeah. Dave, the movie The Passion of Darkly Noon, it's a horror movie that Brendan Fraser was in. He basically plays Frankenstein in it. Uh, so it's very fascinating that he's playing Frankenstein again in this movie. But he does just kind of have that like stocky build with like hair. Yeah. I want to check in, Dave, though. So like at this point in the movie, where are your thoughts at with like how it's describing these people? It's what it's doing, really. I mean, so Clayton Moon is fictional for this in the movie to further um, like James Whale's eventual suicide. Like they're fictionalizing it. As far as I'm aware, Clay Boone is not a real person, correct? Yes, it says that he did have a male nurse as a personal live-in nurse. <clears throat> and so there, this is like somewhat based in truth that he did have a person who fit this bill. Mm-hmm. But it was a nurse, and it was a male nurse, not a, his yard keeper. Yeah. So. so that character is fictional, but they're using him for a real point. Mm-hmm. And you know he is—he has that Frankenstein build, and so he decides he wants to draw him and make him one of his monsters. Yeah, um, we'll get to it at the end. But I was talking with my—I uh, was watching this with my partner, and we were talking about it. And <laughs> Jeff's giving me the look again. Um, again. Oh, that's right. And yeah. Um, but so, well, we'll get to it at the very end. But there's something about like how he views. Clay Boone yes. and how it relates to the end of the movie that I think tied it for me a little bit but it didn't like throughout the course of the movie I wasn't like following along with it yeah. and it goes with the theme of like he sees Clay Boone as like a potential to be another monster for yeah. him but I don't know where that comes from I don't know I don't know where this desire to make a monster comes from so to speak the, this movie is about a guy who doesn't want to be alone when he dies yeah and how he created well, mon- yes he, he, I mean, he talks about mercy. He asks uh, Boone about mercy killing at one point, during, and that's when Boone reveals that he never actually went to Korea. But, I mean, the uh, jumping ahead a bit, that, that's what he's trying to get Boone to do is, is mercy killing. Yes. Yeah, he's trying to turn him into a monster so he can kill him. Kill him. This movie has a lot of, like, complex layers to it. Because there's, you know... Whale's overall arc in this movie is that he's trying to like feel comfortable dying. Like he doesn't want to live anymore if his body's going to continue to fail him, but he doesn't want to die alone. Um, so he needs um, to create a monster that will kill him, and also that will go with him to the end. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, near the end of the movie, there is that incredibly striking image where they recreate the shot from Frankenstein of him walking with the monster and the yeah. monster kind of lets him go to the grave. Yeah. Um, except it is Fraser as the monster um, and McKellen as the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, the kind of the arc of this movie is that he finds this guy attractive. Um, he knows he's not gay, but he's still like, he either wants him as a company or as a monster. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know what happens immediately after. Yeah, like I the, said, this, this is a very hard movie to track in a plot sense. Yeah, but I, I don't doesn't really have a plot. I don't know what comes after him asking him to be sketched. He he agrees. And well, that, he asks, but, yeah, he, he wants him to sketch, and he's like, oh, this shirt, it's too white. It distracts. I need <laughs> you to take your shirt oh, yeah. off. So we go straight to the sketching scene? Um, In terms of what matters. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah. So then in that regard, yeah, then like we do the sketching scene and it starts, well, you just want to sketch my head, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, like that's that's where we can like start off uh, as is like if you want to be bashful young man like i have sometimes i sketch people not as bashful as you and i have full buttocks and pricks out and about pricks and buttocks but before and... that it before that he asks um is this guy famous They're like are you famous oh yeah and then he finds out well is bride of frankenstein director they go to that bar he's like hey well so i met this guy it's when they're like oh yeah sure you did okay <laughs> <laughs> right that's that's a good point like that it, he talks to clay boone shortly after he suffered the stroke from talking with Kay, who is like an admirer of his work whereas clay boone does not know his work at all like he's he's heard of frankenstein he's seen like maybe the first frankenstein movie but he doesn't know who this guy is innately so he doesn't have those attached to like you know yeah, I like that um, um, when he's at when Clay Boone is at the bar and they're watching The Bride of Frankenstein and yeah. everyone else is like kind of laughing at it. And then the next day he th- this actually happens before the sketch, the first yeah. sketch. And he goes in and he's like, I watched one of your movies last night. He's like, oh, did people laugh at it? Yeah. And he's like, no, no. Everyone took it very seriously. He's like, well, the, everyone's so he says everyone's so earnest nowadays. Pictures are meant to laugh. Yeah, I f- after the tro- after what I saw in World War One, I, I figured that why not the best way to confront death is to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was a very interesting, you know, because a lot of people do laugh at those older movies. It's like they're goofy, they're hokey, and it's like maybe you're missing the point. Yeah, that that's intentional, and that yeah. you're supposed to laugh as much as you are horrified. Yeah, Dave, I don't know if you have any more to speak on that. Um, with how people receive those movies nowadays. I mean, I know there is like a cultural shift in the time, but at the same time, the directors back then weren't stupid either. Yeah. They, I mean, they're working with what they got and they're working with what at the time was considered effective and watching all those universal films. There are definitely some parts that are absolutely made to go. Isn't this fun? Aren't we having fun? Okay. Back to scaring the shit out of you. (laughs) It's like they're goofy. Like monsters are inherently goofy. Yeah. And horror movies are inherently kind of funny yeah and they're they're similar in the fact that this is why we're having that whole of like boom of comedy directors suddenly doing horror and just absolutely knocking it out of the park because at the core they're sort of similar in the fact that they are a set a setup into a build-up into a payoff yeah. of something that is not expected yeah they both sort of fit that skeleton uh and the horror comedy even though it's hard to pull off, is fun when it happens. And yeah. that's what a lot of those older films are. They're campy. They know they're campy. And especially once they get into the later ones, like once you're on the, you know, fifth film or whatever, and we're suddenly having Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein <laughs> and Dracula and the Wolfman, which by the way, in the universal month, the sidetrack. I know what you're second. about to say, and I'm very excited about this. Stuart, Stuart, you need to know this. After watching all 30 of these movies, do you want to know what the canon ending is for Dracula? And Frankenstein in the Universal Monsters movies. What? What is it? Well, actually, it's the Wolfman. Sorry, the Wolfman and uh, Dracula. Well, you see, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the canon ending to those characters' arcs is Wolfman wants to die. He is immortal. He cannot die. Dracula just wants Dracula shit. Um, They get into a fight about it. And Wolfman, this movie ends with Dracula trying to escape as a bat and Wolfman tackling him off a cliff and RKOing him 
into the water below, into the cliffs and rocks, and they are never found or recovered. And that is the canon ending for Dracula and Wolfman. <laughs> Wolfman RKO's Wolf Dracula off a cliff as Avon and Castello are like, who's on thirst? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the movie also ends with a surprise Vincent Price voice, Invisible Man. Wow. I think that's funny. That is pretty funny. I also yeah, that shit's wild. Those movies are essentially the first cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah, because they are. And it's fun. It's great. And it's fun Except that the mummy. Abbott and Costello eventually just show up and are in these movies. Yeah, and they meet the mummy, and they meet Frankenstein, and they meet quote Boris Karloff, the killer, who in the movie is not the killer. Uh, this these titles are full of a lot of like that's not what happens in the movie there's a movie called she wolf of london there quite literally is not a she wolf in that movie and that gives it zero stars for me a selling point anyway they're camp they're fun yeah i think this movie saying that you're supposed to laugh at them probably has some truth to it they're supposed to be fun and a little scary it's like when people um like I'm trying to think of a, a modern example of this. Or like it's kind of like '90s Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. It's not scary. It's just kind of disturbing. It's like you're supposed to laugh at it. Yeah. As much as you are, like, kind of freaked out by it. Right. That's uh, Raimi too, in a way. He yeah, intentionally Raimi. camps the hell out of his film. Like, Drag Me to Hell is campy as hell. It's got some goofy shots that are supposed to quote scare you, but you know he made them to go. I know this is supposed to be scary, but you're actually supposed to laugh at it. Yeah. It's like the monsters at the end of Evil Dead 2. People are like, it's not scary-wise. There's so many jokes. It's like, that's the point. Right. That's the point. And it's, it was kind of rewarding to see this movie discuss that. And that James Well, you know, he was intending that when he essentially was one of the originators of the genre of film. Of, you know, major horror pictures. Something I want to address is how this movie, in my opinion, very clearly paints Clay Boone as a closeted homosexual mm -hmm. only because like i think it, i get him most in the bar scene where he's like trying to have his buddies and him like watch the um they, they they're trying to watch um the bride of frankenstein movies and they're all of his friends are like kind of laughing at him. he's like well no this guy's like a big hotshot director it's mm -hmm. like oh man like um I don't remember like how the dialogue goes, but it's just like how his mannerisms are and how yeah. he's like sort of not quite obsessing over him, but sort of admiring him from a yeah. distance where it's like, Oh, like he, he sees something in this guy. But then the moment it gets, he gets confronted with that, particularly through yeah, ja whale. James whale, like sort of pushing sort of in a weird intentional way, pushing his like homosexuality yeah. onto him and how much he like pushes back. And, I see it very intentionally, but it's just a very interesting way how they're like yeah. painting him. Cause the moment like he sort of lashes out, it's like, all right, are we done with this locker room talk? Like, I'm gonna be like, Oh yeah, yeah. He's a closeted gay. Mm -hmm. Like he's, I read him in this movie. Not, I read him as like kind of curious about his sexuality, but, um, oh, uh, we lost Dave. We lost Dave. Uh Oh, right, we're reconnecting. We're reconnecting. Uh, this is exciting content for the listener at home right now. He's back. He's my, back. My, my Wi-Fi is working. Was it you guys that died out? I don't know. You just disappeared off our screen and then popped back. It was like 30 seconds. I'm not even going to cut it out. Yeah. What's the last thing you heard? Uh, the last thing I heard was you talking about, um, you, well, you thought he's a closet homosexual, and then you start going on about uh, 
whale pushing it on him okay. and the way he interacts. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's an accident that the yeah. movie ends showing Brendan Fraser with a family. Yes. With a wife and kid. Because it, it paints the picture of like he has this suppressed yeah. part of himself. It, that whale is trying yeah. to like. And he gets to be a monster at the end of the movie when he's walking in the rain. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's kind of how. And this honestly, is a very rich text. Well, I, I give that credit to my partner who was, I was watching it with. She sort of she sort of filled in those clues mm-hmm. for me. Did she enjoy the movie? Uh, from a like it, we both kind of walked away with it with the same view where it's like, what did Jimmy Whale want? Mm-hmm. Like that was our biggest problem. It's like, well, that's the thing. It's like, was it as simple as he wanted to be killed? He wanted to be killed, and he didn't want to be alone. But well, per his actual suicide note, yeah, he was basically like, I'm old. I hate this. My nerves are shot. This isn't fun. I'm out. Yeah, I also just looked up his suicide note too yeah. to kind of get an idea for it. But yeah, that was sort of more of like what the motivation was. But yeah, that's where like I felt like the ending sort of tied it in where it's like, of course he ends with a family, like a wife yeah. and child. But the moment he's by himself in the rain, yeah, he's he a monster. Walking around like a monster because a whale was able to like create yeah. the monster. Was able to let that part of him yeah. out. So Clay Boone's a, you know, he's the type of closet homosexual that still exists to this day, which are closeted men who will never come out. Yeah. Ever. It's like a, it's, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's quite right to call it like a category because mm-hmm. it sounds like it's a permanent thing. But I think at least in the LGBTQ community, there is like sort of the idea of like the permanently closeted man. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody who grew up in just that right environment where it was always never talked about. And if it was, it was always a joke or laughed yeah. at or humiliated in brought on by their peers, brought on by their s- social culture. And it's just that all concocts like the perfect, like, well, not perfect, the terrible outcome of this is a person who is going to feel out of place for their mm-hmm. entire life. Yes. And that's who Clay Boone is. Yeah. I don't know. My interpretation. No, that's, I think that's actually, my interpretation. You actually just swayed me. You convinced me. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. If, and then you're like, yeah, 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 you're correct. You're correct. That's a good read on this movie. Yeah. Uh, you did sway me. But and I, but that, but then it goes again to my problem with the movie is what did Jimmy Whale want? Did he want to free a closeted man or did he want to I don't think Jimmy egg Whale, on a closeted man? I don't think Jimmy Whale knew what he wanted. Well, that, I, that's hard for me to like latch on to mm-hmm. then. I th- this movie is very much a character study. Yes. It's about trying to understand Jimmy Whale. And I think he's very much trying to understand himself. Because he talks a lot about his traumas. And, you know, we I can honestly just summarize probably roughly the next, like, 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Is that it is just a lot of discussions between him and Clay. Yeah. Just about, like, World War One. He talks about how uh, Clay Boone is like, you know, in war, it's all men. There's no gays in the army. He's like, oh, I... I was gay in the army. I was an officer and I had a love affair with, um, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to look up the guy's name. Oh, the soldier he had a thing with. Yeah. The soldier he had a thing with, um, I think was named Harry. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's Harry or it's Dwight. No, it's Harry. It's Harry. Um, and he had an affair with a guy in the military who was blown up, who was shot by, um, German cannon fire and was laid out on a barbed wire. And how every day he had to get up and look at his dead lover. Um, and in the while middle all of the no soldiers made fun of it. Yeah, made fun of it. Because that was how you cope with death. Yes. Which so is that you what, laugh at it. Yeah. Which is what his movies are. 
Yes. You laugh at death. Yes. And at the end of the movie, he does get to laugh at death when he confronts it. He was trying to get yes. permission to laugh at death. Yeah. Um, he needed one of his monsters to give him permission to die and to laugh as he did so. Yeah. Ugh, I love this fucking movie. But the thing um, is, is he doesn't, uh, he doesn't succeed at any of his missions. He doesn't get killed. He commits suicide mm-hmm. and he dies alone. His, but he gets a monster that gives him permission to die. That's Fraser. Like having his final confrontation with Fraser. What text in the movie makes you think that? His entire final scene with Fraser. Where like he asks Fraser to kill him and Fraser says no. And Fraser loves him and puts him in bed. Loves and, him? Yeah. Fraser like carries him and puts him in bed and takes care of him. Hmm. And Jimmy Whale on his final day get, night gets to know that like he is loved, and his like his legacy will go on mm. as a man who was loved, and that he now has permission to die. Mm. His monster gives him permission to die by taking care of him in his final days because no one else will. Mm. And then he goes and he kills himself. And yeah. you know that is. Basically, the, the, the plot... Of, this movie does not have a plot. It just has a sequence of events. I it's think a there, character story. I think there's one really interesting scene that's worth pointing out that early in the movie, he gets an invite from George Cukor... Yes. ...to go... To reception for Princess Margaret. Right. <laughs> but... And when he, he goes and he takes Clay with him as his guest... Yes. There are also many moments where it's like... Again, the reason why I know for a fact it's like Clay has to be closeted man because he says yes to doing things with this guy that's like well over the cusp and edge and line of oh we are just good buddies yeah like he goes on like a thing with him and is his guest and walks around with him and like they have like lunch and tea time together like it's very but and it's not like and I don't even think Whale puts it up as a front of like, oh, I'm just hanging out with my friend. Because then in the, the spare time of talking, he talks about all about his homoerotic experiences and things like that. So it's it's just a very interesting dynamic, mm-hmm. these two. But when he goes to this party, Kay, the student yeah. who like interviewed him at the beginning, sort of concocted this little meetup yeah. where he sees Boris Karloff. He basically, he it's and, implied that Kay... Um, after, you know, Whale revealed that George Cukor was also um, gay, he went and go interviewed George Cukor and kind of played up to him and was able to get a job out of it. Yeah. And then because of that, he was able to, you know, kind of organize this reunion. Yeah. And so, and this was where um, he was able to get uh, Boris Karloff and Elsa Lanchester together. Yes. Um the Frankenstein's monster and the bride and the bride and they pose for a photo and he's like kind of out of it. Mm -hmm. Like he's not fully all there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. That part was pretty interesting to me. Um, it's, it's good because it's like, he talks about how, um, at one point, you know, Elsa Lanchester's like, don't you just love being famous? Yeah. Kind of like that. Um, one of James Whale's like kind of regrets in this movie is that he's only going to be known for his monster pictures. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, he realizes that, that there's something special about that. Right. That, that there's not something to regret. Those movies mean something and they meant something to him and they meant something to other people. Right. Yeah. And so that scene is like kind of just him being confronted by it. He's only, he was not brought to this party because anyone cares about him. He was only brought to this party so they get the photo op of him with his monsters. 
And as much as he tries to spend the first half of the movie running away from his monsters, at the end he realizes his monsters are the only thing that he has that he loves and loves him back. Mm. He's trying to run yeah. away from his memories, and at the end he realizes he needs to embrace his memories and his traumas and his monsters. The only thing he loves and loves him back. Yes, are his monsters. And he makes Fraser a monster, um, and that is what gives him permission to die. Oh, now you have my permission to die. Of course. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Bane's back. We were having a very like se- like serious moment yeah. there, Jeff. Yeah. I think when I edit this episode, I'm gonna put dead serious music under it. <laughs> yeah, and I put. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm Gotham Reckoning. Dave, was there any standout point for you in this movie? Like, for no survivors. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the part that confirms the idea that Boone is uh, closeted is the fact that after. After he goes for the painting session where he starts talking about the pool parties as they used to have and Boone freaks out and leaves, he goes to the bar, he tries to look for his ex, she's not there, he sits down next to a random woman, and then it cuts to a shot of them having sex later on. Yeah. Very, very violently, I would say. Yes. That's like he is trying to reaffirm, nope, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight, that's what's happening. That's exactly what it is, 100%. I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight. And then he straight, goes straight. and then he goes back to Whale. Yeah. Like he he keeps coming back to Whale. Yeah. Uh the <clears> final <throat> confrontation between the two of them that we've talked a lot and alluded a lot is basically that um uh Whale's very depressed and Clayton or Clay finally agrees to post for him nude. Yeah, because this is actually shortly after the party. Yeah. Where it starts raining. Yeah, and this is where Whale reveals that all those times he's been sketching, his strokes has, have impaired his artistic ability, so he doesn't even have his artistry anymore. Yeah, and he wants and, Which also reveals that he's just been wanting, not just for the pain, but his company, because yes. he wouldn't continue to try to draw him if it wasn't working. Yes. Dude's too proud for it, but he wants the company. Yes. Yeah. And he shows like all these like just <clears throat> scribbly like, lines. scribbles. Yeah. Something I like that I love one of my favorite visual motifs in this movie mm-hmm. is that um, at this time, the movie's camera style changes. Do you notice this? Yeah. When, is it when they walk in the door, when they come in the door yep. from that point on, it starts adopting early, like, like monster movie camera angles. Yeah. Like a little sway and like Dutchy harsh angles and canty, like all that stuff. Yeah. There's that. And then something else that I liked, um, this kind of just is a thematic point, but mm-hmm. I want to bring it up is that, He's established at the beginning of the movie that all his artistry is, you know, um, recreations of other people's famous artwork mm-hmm. or sketches of people that he's looking at. Yeah. The only original art that he has is of his monster, is of Frankenstein. Yeah. That's the only original that he, gives. That he drew from his mind. What was the note he wrote on the back? Um, he wrote, to Clayton, friend, question mark. Yeah. Because what the monster says, friend. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, what you do, um, a large green man walks in your house and says, friend? <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, friend. Oh, he's <laughs> friend. <laughs> You're my friend. You're my friend. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that final confrontation scene, it's, it's a very interesting one because like, he's soaked and uh, McKellen's like, oh, go upstairs and shower and I'll put some clothes out for you. And then Whale goes down into his study where he's having like war flashbacks and stuff with like the lightning and all that. 
Meanwhile, Clay Boone gets out of the shower. He's like, hey, Mr. Whale, where are those clothes you said? And yeah. he comes out and he's wearing just a towel. And throughout the rest of the movie, in, in the house, he only wears a towel. Yeah. He never gets like pants. Fraser, he gets a shirt. Fraser's kind of looking good. But he never gets pants. He's looking good. But for the while, he's just walking around in a towel. He's like, oh, Mr. Whale. Yeah. And he comes and he sees him. And that's where we get like the scribble reveal. Yeah. And his depression. And that's when Fraser takes the towel off. Yeah. And he's like, I will pose for you. Yeah, I'll pose for you. And then uh, Whale puts a World War One gas mask on him. Yes. As a kind of a way of, you know, Monsterifying he's going to him. M- turning him into a monster. Yeah. Um, and then, like, kind of fake attempts to sexually assault him in hopes that it will get him to attack him. That was the interesting bit because it's like, yeah, it is kind of like a fake assault a he, little. Yeah. Like he sits him down. He's caressing his shoulders like it's, yeah. you know, trigger warning for folks on this. But like, but yeah, he's like caressing his shoulders and he's and like Clay is not consenting to any of this stuff at all. He's like, I, I don't like this. Yeah. Chrissy, wake up. I don't like this. And, and then he starts like reaching down. Yeah. He's still wearing like a towel at this point I think yeah. and that's when he like sort of tries to grab and like I think it's worth mentioning yeah that seeing this scene and how it plays out and then knowing Brendan Fraser's future like yeah it made this feel different for me it's a little uncomfortable it. knowing the Fraser like what happens to him later in his life yeah um but I think much as this movie is kind of using this as a you know there's some like this movie doesn't handle this glibly. It's not like this movie sees this as a joke or anything. Oh, look at this goofy old man reaching. Yeah. Like, no, it's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing for Fraser. And it's very apparent that what's like, as it goes on, is that whale is just attacked. It turned him into a monster. So he doesn't have to look him in the eye. And then is basically trying to get him to kill him. Yeah. Because after, when, after he tries to reach down for his, you know, penis. Yeah. Uh, he like throws, whale on the ground and like proceeds to start punching at him throwing punches and whale at this point starts laughing yes this movie was called whale not the whale just, just whale. whale just whale <laughs> fraser 20 years later does the whale <laughs> be kind of poetic yeah. um i mean it is already kind of poetic these yes. two movies um sharing a lot of similarities yeah. um but yeah and how whale just starts laughing and he's like kill me please that's yeah, go, like, he's like, go on, break my neck. Yeah, uh, you know, every day a new piece of my mind goes, but with you, death will be bearable. You could be my second monster. Yes, yeah, yes. Kind of stating the theme on it on the text right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Fraser doesn't, and then he gets back up and he says, "Let's get you to bed." That's all he says. He just says, "Let's get you to bed." So he helps him up. He still has the towel on, um, and he gets him up to bed. And it's almost like nothing ever happened. He just like kind of tucks him in. And I'm trying to think of what he says when he goes in bed. What are his last words mm-hmm. when they leave? Um, I can't remember what his final words are in the bed. Well, he, his fi- his final thing is oh. he just says deny, but he he says when you die, uh, make sure your brain is the last organ to fizzle. Yes, yes, yes. that is what he says. That is the last thing he says. <clears throat> And then with that... Which um, is no accident that I think it's only appropriate that the note that was never found, because originally Whale's death was ruled an accident, 
Yes. Until Dan, uh, uh, David Lewis, who then died decades later when the note was found. And I'm just going to read it for the audience because I think that capitalizes on that final words he says in bed. Yeah. So it's to all I love, do not grieve for me. My nerves are all shot. And for the last year, I have been in agony day and night, except when I sleep with sleeping pills. And any peace I have by day is when I am drugged by pills. I've had a wonderful life, but it is over and my nerves get worse and I am afraid they will have to take me away. So please forgive me all those who, all those I love and may God forgive me too, but I cannot bear the agony and it is best for everyone this way. The future is just old age and illness and pain. Goodbye. And thank you for all your love. I'm, I must have peace and this is the only way. Which is pretty heavy. Yeah. Pretty fucking heavy. And the movie isn't about him overcoming that and finding a new solution mm-hmm. that, oh, no, there is things to live for even when your faculties are gone. Like that's that's the optimistic, happy ending movie, you know, where it's like, yeah. it's OK, you're losing your mind. You can still live a happy life until you die naturally. Like, no, the movie does not go out that way. It goes out the real way. Where he's just like, mm-hmm. nope, that's it. That's it for me. He goes out because that's the only choice he has by him. And so the next day, I think Boone is asleep downstairs, and that's when the maid comes in. Um, and she is like, I can't find Mr. Jimmy. He's not, he's not in his room. And they go outside, and they see him, like, arms folded out, T-Christ pose, face yeah. down in his pool. And Fraser leaps in and gets him out. Yeah, he pulls him out of the pool, and he's dead. And Hannah runs down clutching the suicide note. Yeah. And then what happens is, is like, uh, she says, you have to go. Like, this looks really bad with you here. Yeah. Like, you, you they're going to ask you questions. And, and you're he's gonna like, be well, ass- then how would you have gotten him out of the pool? And she's like, we must put him back. Yeah. And she's like, Mr. Jimmy, you must understand. So they put his body back yeah, in the pool. Yeah, she apologizes. Yeah, she's like, sorry, Mr. Jimmy. Enjoy hell. She yeah. just tell him enjoy. multiple times he's going to hell for being a homosexual. Yeah. She's like, it's not fair, but it is how it is. Yeah, so they put him back in the pool, yeah. and then that's when we get the scene with Brendan Fraser and his wife yeah. and kid, and then he goes out and takes the garbage out, and it's raining, is in his little alleyway Well, at he's home. showing his 10-year-old son, oh, the, the, the Bride the of Frankenstein. Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein, and he shows him the picture. Actually, I think it's just I think it's just Frankenstein. He's showing him the first one. Yeah. Um, and he's like, what would you think of the movie? And the kid's like, it was pretty cool. And he's like, you know, I knew the guy who made that. And he shows him the picture that Jimmy, uh, you know, did for him. And it's a, the sketch, or he shows him the sketch of Frankenstein in the back where it says, to Clayton, friend, question mark. Yeah. Friend. Um, killing the mood for that. Um, and then Fraser goes out and he brings the trash out and it starts raining. And rather than coming inside, he just starts walking like Frankenstein's monster. Like in a monster <laughs> pose with yeah. his arms stretched out. W- flopping in the rain and it and it ends in this beautiful wide shot yeah of him like you just see the silhouette which is a replication of the frankenstein monster silhouette on the horizon that we saw at the beginning of the movie yeah signaling that jimmy whale had made his second monster it is true and that and is whale <laughs> um so this movie should have been called whale something i want to talk about is Gods and Monsters is not a good title, in my opinion. I feel like, Dave, I think you can... I think you'll know the story that I'm going to ask you to tell. Um, The story of Frankenstein's walk. 
Um, and <laughs> can oh. you please share this story? Because I do actually have a problem with how this movie ends. Uh, because he's doing the Frankenstein walk with the arms out. Yes. The, the iconic Frankenstein walk is as you would know it. Stuart, are you aware that is yeah. not Frankenstein's walk? <laughs> really? Uh, Dave, would you like to tell the story about how that became Frankenstein's walk? Years after James Whale's movies. Is it the thriller well, music video? No. Okay. I feel like that's no, a lot so, of No, so, okay. So, I mean, first, let's just acknowledge the fact that if you've seen the Frankenstein movie and you've read the Frankenstein book, the only similarity is that there's a monster created by a guy named Frankenstein. Yes. And that's where it ends. That is where all similarities go out the window. Although Bride of Frankenstein is a subplot of the original Frankenstein yes. book in some way. Um, but anyways, <clears throat> so so uh, the, the Frankenstein walk was... Uh, what was it? Um, it was the third movie... Uh, I think it's Jesus. No, it was Frankenstein. I think it was. I think it was Frankenstein, and I think it was Frankenstein Wolfman. Um, that it was. Uh, so basically, uh, in in one of the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, in that in that one, um, he was blinded (laughs) in that, but eventually, um, he gets his sight back. In, in one of the laters, they never explain how that happens, but that walk just became the pop culture like phenomenon that it is that, oh, that's how Frankenstein walks. We're like six something, six movies into the Universal Monsters thing, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. He gets blinded and he starts, you know, walking around the room so he can feel where he is. And that him getting blinded somehow became that. No, that's just how Frankenstein walks. <laughs> Well, That's didn't, so interesting. Didn't what happened um, is that they filmed the movie with him, with Bella, Bella Lugosi was playing Frankenstein in the movie, not Boris Karloff. And they filmed the movie with the idea that he's blind. So he's walking around like this because he can't see anything with his right. arms outstretched. Yeah. In post, they took out that he was blind. Oh, Dave, is that not correct that they took out he was blind in post and then the movie he's I just don't. It's one of those things where like I feel like I can remember him getting blinded, but I don't remember that exactly. Uh, so yeah, no, he just does the little walk because he's blinded, and then that became the the thing everyone knows. I seem to remember like when they when the movie came out, he's not blind. Um, they took out the bit that explains that he was blind, so it's just him walking around like this, and so everyone's like, oh. That's how Frankenstein walks now. And so they're like, all right, okay, he, yep, walks I found like, it. he walks like this now. It, it goes to Frankenstein. Uh, he was blinded, but that was taken out of the final cut. So when <laughs> Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, he just inexplicably walks like that. Because <laughs> he's blind. Wow. But watching the movie, there's nothing to tell you that. So uh, basically, so- what, what the reason it got cut out... Um, as, I, as I'm reading here, I did not remember this, but now I do remember reading this. Uh, Lugosi's accent was, they were just like, okay, his accent's a bit too goofy for this movie. We got, we got to, we got to cut that. Uh, so the explanatory dialogue was cut from the film. <laughs> so they cut out any reason why he would be blind. And you just watch them and you're like, I guess Frankenstein walks like this now. And now for almost a hundred years, Frankenstein has just pop culture wise walked like this. And has nothing to do with James Whale or Boris Karloff. 
Damn. You ever read the original Frankenstein? I did in high school, so it's been a while. Same. Stuart, you? Uh, yeah, he he talks incredibly verbosely, and then we're left to this. Yeah, the the dude makes H.P. Lovecraft look humble with how like yeah. superfluous with his language he is. You gotta. That's why you gotta watch 1990s Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh and starring Robert, Robert De Niro. De Niro. I have monster, seen that one, where he talks very. Wait, elegant. is that the one that is that the one that has that absolutely insane fire stunt of them walking down the hall? It might be. I think I know what you're talking the ni- about. The 90s is when they decided, because they're always trying to redo the monster movies. Yeah. Every few years, they try and redo the monster movies. Because it was, you know, this iteration, then in the 70s and 80s, it's Hammer. You know, the Hammer horror adaptations of these. In the 90s, they first start being like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the text. And they did Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Promises Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Incredible movie we'll never cover on this podcast. Um, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> figure that out, folks. Um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Less successful, but it is, to my understanding, a faithful adaptation of the text. And then it's funny. Right after we do this episode, Stuart, the next episode we're recording is the next iteration of trying to reboot the modern monster movies. Yeah. Because The Mummy is an yeah. adaptation. Right. Or it's an attempted reboot of these movies that we're talking about. But out of the universe. It's supposed to be... It's Well, not the same universe, but right. it's supposed to... It is a it's remake a of, of The Mummy. Right. Who was in the movies with Frankenstein and all that. Yeah. The Emotep, the same character. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating that we get to cover that after talking about the monster movies today. It is kind... Like, does it ever make you think that God, it would have been great if the Tom Cruise mummy was good, so we could have gotten like a really good like horror verse of Universal. Well, the thing is, it, the was it always doomed to good. fail? Were they were they all doomed to fail? Well, it's because the mummy is like it's a it's not it's a massive action movie. Um, yeah, and but like a I don't know if you've r- seen. I've not seen it. The, the, no, no, sorry. The original mummy movies. Um, of all the movies, uh of the original universal monsters the, the mummy stuff consistently was the lowest of the quality yeah uh it just was not they're not they were not good films yeah at least to me i don't know but to me they just all of them were just miss after yeah miss. i know the mummies are junk to the weakest of the originals but the, the mummy character is like very fluid and the thing is, like, you know, the Brennan Fraser mummy we're going to talk about, it's an action movie, but it has, like, the spirit of adventure and of horror. Yeah. And they decided, all right, what if we just marvelize this? Yeah. Have you seen the Tom Cruise mummy? Nope. Are you aware that nope. Russell Crowe plays Dr. Jekyll and he's trying to put together a team of yep. fucking monsters? Yep. Yep. I'm aware of that part. Welcome to it, a new well, world of it's, cults it's got the monsters. same Amazing Spider-Man Two problem, right? Yes, where it's more obsessed with putting together a universe than yeah. telling a story. It has the exact same scene, right, where the dude walks into a lab and you see these test tubes of like Green Goblin's glider, Doctor Octopus's yeah. arms, Electro's things, and like all this stuff. And then if you look at the Mummy, uh, it's the same writer too. There's another. There's the same scene where they walk into a laboratory and it's. The werewolf, Dracula, Jekyll Hyde, and it's got like the same scene where it's like it's obsessed with setting up and not just telling a good story. Yes. There's um the bread. Oh, keep going, Dave. 
on the bright side, before it fizzled out, we did at least get that absolutely awesome uh, reimagining of The Invisible Man. We Well, that's what's cool is that Universal, um, after that failed, they kind of went back to the drawing board. And they're like, okay, why did the original mo- monster movies work? Why aren't the new ones working? It's like the original ones were made by artists. They weren't obsessed with being, they were scrappy, but they were obsessed with telling a good story. Yeah. Which is why they let Bloomhouse get control of the Universal Monsters. So, Dave, I assume you've seen the new Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. Yes, and that shit rules. It was a good That's movie. That's a good-ass yeah. movie. Have you and seen it? I have not, but, you know, they let Leigh Wannell just make an Invisible Man movie like he wanted. Yeah. And it came out pretty good. Well, and Dave, I've not seen the original Invisible Man, but is it is it of the same thematic of, like, domestic violence? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, this is a complete total retelling of domestic violence being invisible to everyone around them but the victim and everyone just thinks they're insane the original film is hi i have made an invisibility serum and this is going to be totally awesome also the side effects are temporary insanity oops i don't have the antidote yeah but that's why i think i really love liked the invisible man move the new one just because like i think you're right it's made by an artist who has like a, a a deeper vision with it and there is a there it does get a bit sci-fi like the how he's actually invisible is a bit kooky in my opinion. The camera suit, yeah, yeah, the cam- uh... the camera suit basically is what it is. But I do think you should watch it, Jeff. I think you might like it. Because did anyone see the trailer for the newest Universal Monsters movie? No. It's... Wait, there's another. Wait, Renfield. Oh uh, Christ! Yeah, with I Nick Cage as Dracula. <laughs> no shit. It looks fun. It does look fun. Um, it looks fun. I like it. I soon remember. Um... James Wan is doing a Frankenstein movie. And then I think um, I heard this is what we need less of the interconnected universe and more just if they want to do the monsters, just go out there, throw away the original plans and just make whatever the hell Yeah, make make good movies, which is what they seem to be doing. Oh, yeah. Just make a good movie. Just, just do that, guys. Yeah, just it's make simple. a good movie. Yeah, just it's simple. <laughs> just make a good movie. That's all you got to do. Why is that so hard? Make a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's a. We'll talk more about Universal Monsters uh, next episode. Yeah, not next episode, but the one following for the Mummy. The next episode we're going to record, but oh, the next right. episode that's coming out. Yeah. Um, for um the Mummy. Next episode is not the mummy. It's going to be blast from the yeah, past. Yeah, blast from the past, uh, which I'll introduce shortly. Um, which is another movie about a man stuck in the past. Yes. Does anyone have any final thoughts on um, gods and monsters? I feel like it's... we had a, a very robust discussion about this movie. Yeah. I th- it's a it's a great film. That's I mean that's really just what I got to say about it. I think we had the discussion that we should have had, which yeah. was less plotty and more just like dissecting yeah. the threads. This is hard to go beat by beat and more yes. just, it's an analysis movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's a character study about this guy. Yeah. Um. No, I, I, I saw the pieces it was laying down. I just wasn't like fully inundated in the context of the history, um, which might've helped. Yeah. I mean, not. I don't know. We'll be able to, we'll be able to talk about it. Yeah. Cool. Well. Yeah. And with that, that's uh, wrap it up. Yeah, time to wrap it up. Thank you, Dave, so much with for joining us today. They, uh... 
thank you for having me for an actual good film for once. I can't yeah. wait until you do chapter three of this podcast and you put me on some other absolutely horrible film. No, I'm actually going to put you... Uh, I know what I'm going to put you on for the next one, I think. Maybe. I actually don't. Oh, we have a plan for the next one. We do know what the next one's going to be, and I'll tell you once we stop recording. Um, Ooh, fancy. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. As a reminder, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can pop to our Reddit, r slash Travolting. Find us on Twitter or Instagram at TravoltingPod. Email us TravoltingPodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Sweeney. Dave, anything you want to plug? Uh, nope. I got nothing. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sturdum195. And as always, special thanks to Rebecca Johnson for our graphic design, Michael Van Bodegum-Smith for our theme music, and Ange Gardner for our social media. See you folks next week. Have a great week. Bye. Blast off.